I'm Jeff Cohen. In part one of my conversation with Eliza Bulow, she told the story of how she grew up in a non-Jewish home but converted to Judaism at the age of 16, and how in no time at all she was studying Torah, doing mitzvahs, living in Israel, joining the army, and finding a marriage partner. But that was just half of her story, because marriage and parenthood would bring unforeseen challenges and heartbreaking tragedy. She joins me again today to tell the rest of her story. Eliza, welcome back to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. So picking up where we left off, you're talking marriage with a nice young man named Ephraim, and you're looking toward the future. Where are you thinking you're going to settle down and start your life together? So I, of course, wanted it to be Israel, but he was very clear that turns out the legal system in America and Israel are two completely different systems. And he was just trained for the American system and um, needed to start working if we we're going to get married. And coming to Israel meant five years of stage and a retraining, which would put off the ability to bring in an income. So we decided we'll start in the States, hopefully on the five-year renewable Aliyah plan, which turned into the grandparent plan, which turned into the <laughs> when Mashiach comes. I think that's when we're going. Plan. You still have a plan, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right, Hashem. But probably is going to be the Mashiach plan at this point, because our kids are here in this country. But anyway, that was the plan. So we knew at that time that he wouldn't be starting in Kolel, and we wouldn't be starting with Aliyah. So we did want to start with a mitzvah. And we had already like built some of our engagement around mitzvah doing together. We we were Mavakar Cholim every Shabbos and or many Shabbases and Sloan Kettering, his mother had founded the Beaker Cholim there. So we went to visit cancer patients and and we would do what we could together like that. But we decided to go to Russia together. That would start our marriage. So we went to Russia to visit Refusniks for the first few weeks of our marriage. And what were you hoping to get out of that experience? Um, what was I hoping to get out of it? I was hoping to give by it. <laughs> What about that specifically? Like, there's a lot of different ways you could have wanted to give back, do chesed, etc. What was it about that that you thought this is the thing to do? I, I was very engaged in the Soviet Jewry, um, free the Soviet Jews movement from high school, actually. Um, and it actually was even given um, a, a few social studies periods in high school to explain to the kids in, at, in Jefferson High School what was going on in Russia. And they were very involved in that high school. They were very involved in the anti-apartheid movement. So this was kind of adjacent to, like, how do you free people? Let's all write aerograms and give them support, at least. And I babysat, raised the money, got the aerograms, you know, brought them into class. We all wrote letters to Soviet Jews, et cetera. So I was very involved in that throughout in Israel, too. And then on college campus back in the States, um, led the Jewish Student Union and protests and Washington marches and meeting with congressmen and that kind of thing. Um, so it was a natural progression. And his parents were very involved, too. His father was very involved in um, helping to free Sharansky. And um, so it was part of definitely part of the conversation and the push in the family to work towards that. So it was very clear that if we wanted to do something important, we should start with that. And just the challenges of being in Russia and being able to see that for three weeks. It was a real gift in my life, I have to say. And then you come back and is starting a family on your mind? And, and if so, are you, having converse- <laughs> yeah. are you having conversations about how you want to raise them, given your backgrounds aren't exactly the same? So you have to kind of negotiate, what is the culture of our family going to be? Yeah, we were very clear. I mean, we knew, we knew for instance, it would be a TV-free home. And we knew it would be Shomer Shabbat. We were both, you know, Shomer Shabbat and Kashrut and Tarata Mishpacha. And we knew that, that would be it, that he'd be working. And we made an actual agreement that he would be earning the money and I would be raising the family, even though we had been raised in times when that wasn't what had to be, mm-hmm. that we were making that conscious choice that that is what it would be. 
And then he, as I said, I met him cresting off of his Chabad high. So um, I thought we met like kind of parallel. And it turns out we met with him going off and me going up still. So we used to joke a lot in our early marriage that we were a modern Orthodox couple because he was modern and I was Orthodox. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just always wanted to be as Jewish as I could be from day one. Yeah. yeah, from day one. So that's why I said I wasn't like it wasn't about being conservative or being orthodox. It was about being in a relationship with Hashem, finding purpose and meaning in the world. And he and I did a little bit together. Like we learned through all of Rabbi Tuvia Singer's stuff together, which was really where I got my Christian education because I left Christianity at ten. So really, what did I know about Christianity? Nothing. But I learned about it from whatever Christmas specials I had watched as a child, and then. To be singer later on is where I learned some basic paradigms, um, but from that perspective. But he, he at that time he was going around to different shuls doing. He had a great act that he would do. He'd come out as a missionary first and like try to missionize the congregation, <laughs> and then he'd come back dressed as a rabbi and refute all the things that he said at first. And it was fun. It was like a fun night. I think we went like on a date night to see that, and so then we listened to. So we did some learning together in that way, and then he was busy as a lawyer, and I was busy as a mother, and I was busy learning with my kids and going to shiurim and I started teaching shiurim and he was always supportive of that even if he didn't always engage in that. And so my my secular friends think two or three kids is a big family but as I became orthodox myself I found out that's not really a big family that's a starter family so how far do you guys go as a couple? So we had in mind four I think when we got married. I was definitely raised on two zero population growth so don't have more than two so four was already a stretch but we were Hashem arranged for us to start our marriage in an apartment building with all old Jews. Everybody was in their 80s. Everybody was Jewish. And those were my girlfriends. I was 60 years younger than all of my girlfriends. And we were great friends. And we would fold our laundry together in the laundry room and talk about our husbands and (laughs) (laughs) as we folded laundry and our children. And I'd bring, you know, I had my baby in the stroller and then my two babies in the stroller. And to a woman, every single woman said, I wish I would have had more children. And it really made an impact on me. And I really thought, I don't want to be them saying, I wish I would have had more children. I think we should have a few more than that. And I gave birth to my twins while still in that building. So I had my fourth, third and fourth still in that building. And then we bought a house. But I knew there needed to be more coming. Like it wouldn't just be the four, that that was going to be a, a smaller family. And, and six seemed to be good. I, I, when I was interested in the seventh, <laughs> my husband was like, All right, the next, good. right? Which could have been twins, right? <laughs> so he's like, go ahead. He said, have twins <laughs> again. No problem. You could name them after me, Harry and Carrie. <laughs> It's like, okay, maybe six is good then. <laughs> and, and by the way, a TV-free home means something totally different now than it did then. Like my friends who say that now may still have smartphones, iPads, and other ways that people are accessing basically the same thing as TV. But in that time period, it really meant you could keep a lot of that media stuff out of your house. Yeah, I was so thankful. Actually, I'm so thankful every day today that that one decision to not have a TV in our home meant we didn't have that coming into the house. And today it's almost impossible. Every toddler knows how to swipe a phone and find what they want, like really from the earliest, before they're verbal, they can find their videos. So um, I'm so thankful that we didn't have that challenge. We had plenty of other challenges, but not that one. (laughs) And, And so as you're raising this family, I mentioned the introduction and in the early part of the interview that you were talking to me from Denver, but at this point in the story, you're on the East Coast. So how does that transition happen? Is it a feeling of wanting a different experience for your kids than what they're having? Like, where did that thought come about to move? 
So, right. So we were in Long Beach, Long Island, and the kids were all in their different schools, different programs, doing their different things, and had found my space in the community, which was a little bit hard to find. I wasn't modern orthodox, and, and I didn't feel like I was Haredi. I didn't fit in that model, didn't quite know what that was. But I, I did sort of find my niche, which was more in the Haredi world than in the modern orthodox world, because it was one or the other, kind of. And I had my kids in those schools and was raising them in that way. And we had gone to the bungalows in the Catskills for six summers, which was a piece of the acculturation process that was important in my life as well. And I really appreciated the Shar Yashuv pathway and Freifeld's pathway and Tehila Yeager's pathway, I guess, of a Tarat Emet and Tarat Chaim mixed, like a true, deep Torah that was manifested in daily life on a regular basis as a singular obsessive goal, which was mine. And I loved the way they manifested it and tried to be like that and had a hard time finding a community like that. And I guess one day I kind of woke up and realized this is not a healthy life that we're living in. And I really thought maybe we should move, I don't know, to Passaic or something like that is what I had in mind. And I sat down with somebody to get some guidance. I had read Rav Dessler's biography um, on a Motzei Shabbos when I was away and decided I should be asking more, not just like procedural halachic questions, but hashkafic, hadrachic guidance questions. And as I started to pose this question about moving, the person that I spoke with, of Pinchas Young, told me, so it's very clear you need to move and, and off the eastern seaboard, like away. Um, and, and I realized that, that it would be a good move for us to move out of the New York area, move away from the kind of law practice and grueling hours that my husband was putting in. And I didn't want my teens to grow up quite like the teens I was seeing where I thought they might go in the neighborhood that we were in. So we looked around for different communities that might be a good fit for us. And we really thought about Milwaukee because at the time we were reading the Ated Neman that every week had an ad in it that said, thinking of moving, think Milwaukee. And of course I was from Wisconsin, so I thought Milwaukee might be an idea. But since I was from Wisconsin, I thought I already knew what Milwaukee was about. So I thought I'll look at Denver first because we narrowed it down to Denver and Milwaukee, both of which had a Tversky. And we ended up moving to Denver right at the same time that Rabbi Trusky moved out. <laughs> but, um, but then we, act, we actually ended up buying his father's home. So we live in Rabbi Shlomo Trusky, Lava Shalom's house. And um, I feel very privileged to live in the house of a tzaddik here in Denver, Colorado. And so we were talking just before about how you and I understand like secular versus religious because we've lived in both worlds. You now also have this, I've lived in town and what they say is like an out-of-town community. So what's your viewpoint on that now that you've been in both worlds? It's not just living in both worlds, but all the travel. I've done extensive travel professionally as a support for Rebbitzins across the world. So I've seen lots of communities inside and outside. About a year ago in Mishpacha magazine, they have a, a comic in the back called The Kichels, and The Kichels produced a map very similar to the New Yorker magazine's map you know the Hudson was the end of New York and then there's California and nothing in between corn there's corn in the middle (laughs) right corn in the middle (laughs) but the Mishpacha magazine map was brilliant I loved it but it had Denver and Detroit together because Uh (laughs) people mix them up Uh all the time it's those two D cities that are out of town so there really is a very different out-of-town consciousness than there is in town. And even Denver and Detroit, there's a very big difference. Detroit's a much larger Jewish community. So out-of-town, you're actually valued on a much higher level than you are in town as an individual community member because you're needed. 
Your voice matters. Your presence matters. And that is something that I wanted my kids to have, that out-of-town chen, the shine that comes from being out of town and the softness. I wanted my kids to have that that softness, shine, and, and, and grace, extra measure of grace that they would offer others. So that is one reason we chose an out-of-town community like Denver and why we didn't go for a bigger out-of-town community like Chicago because we wanted it to be out-of-town where we'd make a difference. And did you also find that your husband got the work-life balance that you were thinking might be an added benefit to moving out of the tri-state area? A hundred percent, yeah. It cost us half our annual income every single year, but it was totally worth, at this point, millions of dollars, right? Whatever it costs, you know, $100,000 a year or more to purchase a father and a husband for our family. And so we don't have as nice clothes and our yard is not as nice and we haven't gone on family vacations and we never, ever went as a family to Israel or Disneyland, ever. But we have every day a father and a husband and it's amazing. It's really, and all my kids have like a strong relationship with him now. And he takes each one as adults now on father-child trips a week here or there with just one-on-one with each of the kids. And um, that is definitely something we wanted, just to have much more of his presence in our lives. So it seems like you, you at this point have found a good path, but then at the same time in the introduction, I used the word tragedy in describing your story arc. So, I mean, whatever you feel comfortable sharing about what happened with one of your kids along the way when you thought you had this you know beautiful life you were setting up and your husband was now going to be present, that things took a little twist at that point, right? So on the one hand, they took a twist, and on the other hand, they didn't. Because... And yes, it's tragic, but also it's not a tragedy in a way. Like, I would say from this perspective, and definitely I've spent years growing in my relationship with Hashem, but Hashem chose to put a neshama into our family that needed a lot of extra love and that would bring a lot out of us. And that neshama was born into a body that had a brain that had mental illness. So um, that mental illness developed over time. And so it wasn't a shock. Like, yes, it's tragic to lose a child because he ended up dying from his illness. For me, it was sort of like a cancer death, like it was a long time brewing and always a hope for a cure, but always kind of knowing that it wouldn't most likely get cured. So it was a real challenge. And I was so thankful to have a husband much more close at hand for the challenges of raising a mentally ill child, because that is challenging, very challenging. And it really, it was hard on the family and everybody loved him and was sometimes scared of him too, both. It was hard as he grew into bipolar and Asperger's. So the Asperger's was quirky, weird, fun. And I love the word quirky because it's not pejorative, whereas weird might be, but he was definitely quirky. But he did end up dying of suicide. So it's dying of his mental illness at age 19, which yes, was a tragedy. And there are many parents who would say, I wish I could just take on like the pain that my child has, like a pain. And in a way, that's what happens. Like, I didn't necessarily wish that, but I saw in his death that he's now out of pain and we're now in it. And um, there's that switch of the emotional pain. But I think in a way it's distributed across the family, so everybody has more, but hopefully in quantities that we can all live with. And he couldn't live with the quantity that he had. I would think that also gives you an avenue for not feeling blame about what happened because... You're trying all the things that that a loving parent would do from medications to doctors thinking maybe something here is going to work, but that when it doesn't, you can in some way at least be at peace with understanding that it was mental illness. It's not about how you parented the child. Right. I mean, certainly there are questions along the way about parenting and certainly blame raising a quirky child 
who some people called weird or difficult or whatever it was. You know, it must be your parenting. But he was number six. Mm-hmm. I, like, I successfully parented the top five. There's a track record <laughs> number, here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And number six was just like he was an enigma wrapped in a question mark surrounded by a mystery. Like, it was just like he was such a challenge all the time. Nothing that I learned from the other children except patience. Nothing else came into play with this child. Like, it was all new all the time. I knew as a parent advocate that I was doing my best and that he was doing his best. Other people didn't see that. And I was okay with that on some level. There's always the shoulda, coulda, wouldas in the end. Could we have, should we have mortgaged our house for one more treatment program or like whatever it is. And I just was like, I I did everything I could within my powers. And, and this is what Hashem decided, you know, it's like that's when he needed to exit. And maybe he lasted a few extra years because of everything that we did. But he was not meant to grow into adulthood, sadly. And we still miss him. And we still, like, there's definitely things in our life that are part of him, whether it's sourdough, because he brought that into our family. And I still have some of his starter in the freezer, which, it's nine years. Who knows if that would work? But I don't want to defrost it, just in case it won't. Because (laughs) then that would be the end of that starter and its potential. But whatever, little bits and pieces, pieces of his computers and his life. And I'm in his bedroom right now, which is my office now which um, we call the elephant room because there's an elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have my elephant collection on the windowsill. Um, yeah. And when you, when you hear a story like this, it can lead to uh, shaking your faith in Hashem. It can also lead to problems in a marriage as parents might be blaming each other for how it played out. Like what happens after this suicide in terms of your faith, your husband's, and also the strength of your marriage? So we made a decision Again, because we, we've had a very intentional marriage, but we made a decision at his death to turn towards each other and not to turn away. And my husband was definitely worried. He was like, you know, a lot of marriages fall apart at the loss of a child. So I just, I wouldn't be able to bear losing him and losing you. I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> that, that's not an option. We're going to stay together and we're, we'll go through this together. That's 100%. And then faith was another question. I think we both were strong in our faith at that time. I'd say there are other things that shook my husband's faith, although this probably was part of it. That's the truth. A few years later, we had a grandson who was born who carried part of Donnie's name and part of his father's name. My husband actually lost three generations in one year because my daughter gave birth to twins in November before Donnie died, and one twin died. So that was losing a grandchild. And then Donnie died in May, so that's losing a child. And then Erev Sukkis, his father, died. So in one wow. year, he lost three generations. You said that your husband... Even at the earlier part of your marriage, like maybe he was plateauing while you were growing and now you have these all these different traumas going on in your life. So it's affecting him on, on a different level than you. It, d- it definitely did. And I continued in the growing and in the connecting to Hashem and he didn't continue in that pathway. So although he was still in the behavioral pathway, still Shomer Shabbos and I would say in more of the conservative of his youth, Shomer Kashas in that way. Although I ran our, I still run our home kitchen 100%, and he's careful with that. I get to set the rules there. And then this child died a year after he was born, and he suffered. He really suffered. I think that was the end for my husband. Like, really, he's definitely in a place of either I'm mad at God or God isn't there, because how could God be that mean to bring a baby into the world just to torture him and kill him? 
So that it's a painful place. And uh, he supports me in my place of supporting people within the community. And I'll live with him with kindness and gentleness while he's in that estranged place. He still has the meadows. Um, so that's good. He does. He does. He has excellent meadows. Yeah. Yeah. He's loving and supportive and still still pays our shul membership, which I think is amazing. <laughs> like, Even though he doesn't go and is not interested. But that's what a community member does. They pay even if they don't show up. At least there should be a place they should not show up to. <laughs> Because that's kind of what it is, right? To be Yisrael is the, you know, struggling with Hashem all the time. I feel like that's a gift of the Jew by choices. There's less struggle. And the Jew by birth is just born with more struggle. So there's a constant inner dialogue of how far you want to go with this and how much you want to be committed to it. And do you feel committed or enslaved or empowered or hampered or whatever it is? Whereas the Jew by choice is just like, wow, Hashem, your Torah is so cool. <laughs> Let's just do this thing. <laughs> And by the way, so. your story is like so compelling and so interesting, but it's not actually the reason that I had you on. I originally found you through CORE. So before we wrap the interview, I want to at least give you an opportunity to, you know, explain to our listeners how that came about and what the mission is of the organization. So as soon as I learned anything about Judaism, I just, I loved it. And the more I learned, the more I, I started, I probably started teaching a little bit in Israel, um, at Bravinders already. I was, became a dorm counselor. And then in the army, I went in specifically to represent you know, to positively represent the firm community. And so I started teaching in that way, just through life example. And it's just, that's always been who I am. So I started in Kiruv professionally after my kids were of a certain age, because at first I was full-time mom. And then I, I was hired by an organization um, mid-career to travel and support Rebitsons all across the field. So I did that for 11 years. And so I got to see inside lots of different communities and what's going on inside the from world. And the more I saw what's going on inside the from world, the more I understood that from women need a lot of support. And I could bring a lot to them I have, from the Kiruv experience that I have to bring a lot inside. So when the funding for my, my Rebitson support job ended, I just created a new paradigm of how will we reweave the social fabric of the Jewish people and how will we create more support for women by women and support women who are upholding the community? It's not a leadership initiative, but more like, how can we uphold? So how can we be pillars? So I have different communities of support for women, professional development and support for women who are in all different kinds of roles of support, whether they're Rebitsons or in the Chavar Kedisha or doulas or Kala teachers, whatever it is, trauma healers, or I have one for FFCs from female CEOs of Jewish not-for-profits. And we, CORE offers all kinds of professional development. Like, I love this aspect of the Jewish people that we're all in it together. And we can all help each other grow. The more we learn about each other and the more we care about each other, the more we can help each other. So I'm all in for that. There's a lot that's going on. But just it's so much fun to be part of thousands of women's lives from around the world and helping them grow and connect with each other. So I have Hasidic women interacting with Litvish women, interacting with modern Orthodox women, interacting with just across the spectrum. Not that they wouldn't want to, just they wouldn't always have the opportunity to do that. So there's such a broad communication between them and help. So one of the women who was in my previous, uh, my inaugural cohort of MMCs, Mashbia Mentor Counselors, that's the pastoral program, she is a Hasidic woman who is a master communicator. She, as I did, did not finish high school, just finished with a GED. And then she learned a lot on her own. And she 
knows how to facilitate conversations. And here she is, this Satmar woman, teaching women across the spectrum on how to hold space for each other. And there's just so much beautiful interaction, really a symbiosis of how we feed each other and grow through that and each give to each other in ways that really helps so many people blossom around the world. We have over 20 women from 20 countries. We share curricula, we share ideas for classes or, or synagogue programs or bat mitzvah ideas or whatever it is just around the world. Ideas are traveling through core networks and it's just so fun to watch that blossom as women step forward and share with each other. And so that's the perfect lead into my last question for our listeners who are thinking, wow, CORE could be great for me. How do they find you? <laughs> so we have a website, CORETORA.org. CORE was taken, so CORETORA.org. And there's a contact form there. And there's also more about our programs, starting a circle um, or joining a community of practice. We have 13 of them now. Or a waiting list for our MMC program, where we've just started a, our second cohort. So in a year, we'll open applications for our third cohort, Bezerat Hashem. But we're always doing new things, and um, anybody who wants to get involved, find us, and um, we'll love to share your energy. And I have to say, yours is one of the most fascinating, compelling we've heard. So, Elisa, I just want to say thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TaklisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TaklisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.